Um, I had a pastor once that recommended, he said, if you ever get a chance to read someone, so like a theologian, a pastor, he said, look for someone who's dead. And I was like, what? And the point that he was making is that if someone wrote something and their book has outlived them, what they had to say was powerful and you need to hear it. If there's someone that wrote something and the book didn't survive, well, it didn't survive for good reason. If people are still alive, the reason that the book's around is because they just wrote it. But if it stands the test of time, it has something worth reading. And so I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. Well, Ian Bounds is one of those. He is not alive, but he wrote several books on prayer, and you can buy his complete works as a set. I've got it in my office. It's really good, and it's in contemporary English, so I can get through it with my lower reading level. Um, But I want to read to you some quotes from some of his works on prayer. Here's what Ian Bounds had to say about prayer. He said, no man can do a great and enduring work of God who is not a man of prayer. And no man can be a man of prayer who does not give much time to praying. And I kind of reworked that and replaced the word man with church for our purposes. And that would be no church can do a great and enduring work for God who is not a church of prayer. And no church can be a church of prayer who does not give much time to praying. He said on another occasion, the little estimate we put on prayer is evidence from the little time we give to it. He said the secret of success in Christ's kingdom is the ability to pray. Every mighty move of the Spirit of God has had its source in the prayer chamber. Now, these are some powerful quotes on prayer, the necessity of prayer, the power of prayer. But at the end of the day, we don't just want someone's opinion. We want to know, does the Bible support this view of prayer? So what I want to give you real quick is three reasons why I think the Bible supports E.M. Bounds' emphasis on prayer and its importance. And my prayer is that God might use this to make us into a people of powerful prayer. What does the Bible teach us about prayer? There's a lot of things. I'm just going to highlight three reasons for our purposes. Number one, the Bible teaches us that the early church regularly gathered for prayer. So I went through and looked through the book of Acts. It's an account of the beginnings of the church and its growth. And in the book of Acts, I looked at every instance of the word pray and the different forms of it. Pray, praise, prayed, prayer, prayers, praying. And as I looked in all those instances, it came up in the 28 chapters 30 times. Pray three times. Prayer eight times. Prayers two times. Prayed ten times. Praying seven times. And I looked at all of these and I asked how many of these instances are when the church is gathering together for prayer. Because we know that we should pray individually, but what about the gathered church? And what I found was that 15 of those instances, it was the gathered church praying. They got together corporately or in a group of Christians, and they prayed. I've got a list of those. Actually, if you want that later, you can go and look for those things yourself. But if you look at all these different accounts... And you look at these groups, what you notice is that when groups are praying, sometimes it's groups of Christians outside of the church for prayer. 
They withdrew to a location and they got together as a group and prayed. Sometimes it's the church officially gathering for their meeting and they're gathering together just for the purpose of prayer. One of our brothers is in prison. The church gathers and they lift up prayers for that. Sometimes you notice that Christians are just attending the hour of prayer at the temple. They have a time, the ninth hour, that's about 3 o'clock p.m., and that was the hour of prayer at the temple. And they said, okay, it's the hour of prayer. Let's go. And they went to the temple and they prayed. And Acts isn't the only place that we see this. Jesus withdrew by himself often to pray, but he also prayed publicly and with his disciples. When he went up on the mountain of transfiguration, he brought up some of the disciples with him, Peter, John, James. And if you look, the text says he brought them up there to pray with him. If you look in John chapter 17, we see Jesus's high priestly prayer. If you want to know why we have that recorded, it's because John is there listening to this prayer. It's public. Jesus took the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, and he asked them to pray with him. So we see a lot of examples in Scripture of corporate, public, gathering together and praying. Sometimes we're afraid of, oh, well, we're supposed to pray in our prayer closet and not let people see us pray. And I think we have a lot of examples of that in Scripture where the church does gather together to pray. So combining all of these together, what we can say about prayer in the early church is that the early church prayed frequently, regularly, individually, corporately, generally, specifically. The early church was known for its prayer. That's the first thing we see in Scripture. Second thing we see in Scripture is that God's house is to be a house of prayer. Matthew 21, 13 says this. This is Jesus speaking. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So most of us will be familiar with this. He's actually quoting an Old Testament prophecy here. But the point is that God's house is to be a house of prayer. So I would look at that and say, okay, well, our churches should be houses of prayer. And you might say, well, Gary, he was talking about the temple. He was talking about the temple being the house of prayer, not churches. Yes, but the temple still exists. It's just not brick and mortar anymore. It's flesh and bone. We are collectively the temple of God. If you've been looking through Ephesians, you'll know at the end of chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. He says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Christians, the church, are growing up together into a temple where God dwells in our midst. It's not the building as much as it's the collection of people within the building. When the church gathers as the church, whether we're in the sanctuary or we gather as the church in the gym or in the fellowship hall or we gather as the church out at the park, the church is gathering. That is where the temple is, where God is dwelling in their midst. And Jesus tells us and Isaiah tells us the place where this prophecy occurs is that this house, this gathering is to be a house of prayer. 
Our regular prayer communicates this truth. God dwells among us and we have his ear. So our irregular prayer or our lack of prayer communicates this. There is no God. I don't need God. God's help isn't important. God is my backup plan. Psalm 14, I read recently in the very beginning in verse 1, David is speaking about the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And if you go down a little bit in Psalm 14, he makes this statement about the fool, and he says that the fool does not call upon the Lord. So he says there is no God, and you see that because he doesn't call on God. And it's the opposite with us. If we believe there is a God, what ought we to be doing? Calling upon that God regularly in prayer. That's a sign that God is our God. Listen to all the ways the New Testament, this is just the New Testament here, instructs us both explicitly and implicitly to pray. I think I've got close to all of them here. I might be missing some, but listen to this. Just the New Testament. Pray for the sick. Pray for those who are suffering. Pray for justice for the oppressed. Pray for the forgiveness of sins for others caught in sin. Pray for another, one another in response to confession of sin. Pray without ceasing. Pray persistently. Pray expecting to receive. Pray for God to raise up laborers for the harvest of God's word. Pray for God to use specific servants for specific tasks. Pray that we wouldn't be tempted. Pray in advance for doors to open to further the gospel. Pray that we might not do wrong. Pray for restoration. Pray for ourselves to speak God's word with boldness. Pray prayers of thankfulness for people coming to faith in Christ. Pray that we will be filled with God's will. Pray for the ministries of those who are sent out by God to do ministry. Pray for the desire to act honorably in all things. Pray for well-being and good health. Do not pray with vain repetition or to be well thought of by those who hear it. Pray in line with God's will. Pray for provision. Pray prayers ascribing glory to God. And in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Christians, obviously, are to overwhelmingly be a people of prayer. Overwhelmingly. And God's house, where the Christians gather together, is to be a house of prayer. Number three, this is the last one. Why do I think that Ian Bounds has it right? Because the Bible teaches us that God responds to prayer with power. Going through scripture again, Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Isaac prayed and Rebekah conceived and had a child. Moses prayed and God stopped, ceased displaying his wrath against the Israelites in the wilderness. Elisha prayed, and a blind man received his sight. Ezra prayed, and all the people of Israel experienced revival and confessed their sin. Nehemiah prayed, and God rescued him from exile and sent him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. 
Job prayed for his friends. They were forgiven and all of Job's fortunes were restored double what he had before. Daniel prayed whenever he was commanded not to. Prayed regularly and God rescued him from the lion's den. Jesus himself prayed all night before he selected the 12 disciples. Peter prayed and a little girl came back to life. Jesus' disciples prayed and demons were cast out. Paul prayed and countless people were healed of diseases everywhere he went. When we pray, God softens our hearts of stone and forgives us and restores us through Jesus Christ. God responds to prayer with power. Have you ever thought about why? Why does God do this? Why does God respond to prayer with power? And to answer that, I'm going to offer up another question. What about when we don't see God responding with power? What about when we pray and we don't see God doing these powerful things? Garrett, I've, I've prayed countless times and God hasn't answered all of my prayers that way. What about when we aren't receiving from God? James 4, 2 through 3 says this. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So there are at least two reasons that we don't receive from God. Number one, sometimes it's because we don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. How can we expect for God to give us success in ministry if we don't ask him for it? How do we expect God to use our church to be a beacon if we don't regularly say, God, use our church as a beacon in Gina? God, send me a ministry opportunity. Second reason that we don't receive is we ask wrongly sometimes to spend it on our passions. It doesn't bring God honor and glory to bless a church that isn't a prayerful church because the blessings will be ascribed to the church and not to God. If we're not a praying church and God blesses our church, guess who gets the glory for that? We do. We do. We brought about this. We've accomplished this work because of our friendliness and our kindness. We made people feel welcome. We ran a flawless youth ministry trip. We did these things. God will not bless a church that isn't a praying church for that reason. It doesn't bring God honor and glory to bless a church that prays with wrong motives. Because the church will not use the blessings to honor and glorify God, but to satisfy its own desires. And this is often really difficult to see from the inside. It's hard to know sometimes when we're guilty of this. Here's one way that I've seen it. And this comes from a good place, and I would agree with this prayer. God, would you fill our church with people? I want to see our church just slam-packed full of people. On the outside, that prayer sounds really well-meaning. 
We want our church to be full of people who have been saved. But what you can't see is the difference between two people who pray that same prayer but with different motives. For some, the motive is selfishness. God, would you fill my church with people because we're the biggest church in town. We should have more people. Because we used to be bigger. Because we have too many older people. Because we have too many younger people. Because we need more tithes in the church. As opposed to a motive that might say, God, fill our church with people because our culture desperately needs you. And people won't come to you if they don't come here and hear your word. God, fill your church with people because we have so many people here that need to be saved. God, fill our church with people because I want to minister to people and I need you to send them here so that I can serve them. You see how the same prayer can have two different motives. There's a big difference between agreeing with these statements and being motivated by these statements. We would all agree with the statement, for instance, God is desirable. I desire God. But our motivation to go to church isn't always God is desirable. Do you see the difference? It's the difference between just agreeing, I agree with what that statement says, and being motivated in our hearts by what that statement says. And it's the same with our prayers. Sometimes our motivation for going to church isn't God is desirable, it's, it's Sunday. <laughs> Which, great, come to church because it's Sunday. But when it comes to our prayers and God answering with power, our motivation matters. If we want to see God respond to our prayer with power, we must ask, but not only ask, we need to ask unselfishly for God's honor and glory, not our selfish desires. We must gather together and pray with a desperate motivation for God's power to be made known among us so that the rest of the watching world can behold God's power, not our own success. That's why we need to be a praying church. We don't want people to think First Baptist Church has it going on because of the people. If, if that's what we're known for, we failed. People need to know, well, First Baptist Church has it going on, but we don't know why. Why, why is it that, that they're seeing these things? We're doing the same things they're doing. And we'll know it's because we are on our faces praying and begging God regularly to do a work in our church and through our church. And with that, I'm going to leave you with a biblical example of this. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 30 through 39. Elijah and the prophets of Baal are both going to build an altar and pray and see whose God is the real God. You'll be very familiar with this passage more than likely. 
So the prophets of Baal have already gotten their offering together. They've cut themselves and they've danced around this altar and their God's not answering. And we know it's because their God isn't God. He's fake. He's not real. Elijah's God is the real God. Listen to what Elijah does here. And specifically, I want you to listen to why he asks for God to do this and what the outcome is. So listen to this. I'm going to read 1 Kings 18, 30 through 39. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah asked of the Lord and he said, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. That's what our prayer as a church needs to be. Every week, God, don't grant us success because we've got things right. Answer our prayers in such a way that everyone in Gina will know, because of what you're doing at our church, that you are God. You are the one who is bestowing upon us these blessings. Let's pray. Father, we so desire to see a magnificent working of power from your glorious riches and storehouses of power that are ready to be poured out on account of the prayers of your people. Father, would you motivate our hearts rightly as we come to you in prayer? Would you give us a deep yearning desire to see you honored and lifted up and glorified? Father, we want to live for you alone.
for your glory alone. Would you make us into a house of prayer? Would you make us into a people of prayer? Would you make us into a people who are dependent upon you? And that if you don't move, we don't see success. Father, if we come to you with any false desire, not for your honor and glory, but for selfish motivation, Father, I pray that you would hold back your blessings from us until we are desperate for you. God, would you establish us as a beacon in Gina where people know that you are walking in our midst here, not because of our power or our success or our abilities or our understanding or our theology or our hearts for people, but just because you are answering the prayers of your servants with power. God, would you bring our friends and our neighbors here as you're walking in our midst so that you might touch their hearts of stone and create them into hearts of flesh and that they might be saved and that they might grow in holiness and in sanctification and that they might learn to be dependent upon you as we are. God, would you use us to grow your kingdom? We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and that you have sent him to redeem us from our sin. We ask all these things in his wonderful, precious, holy name. Amen.